Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Book Room. My name is Sama Sabawi and I am your host. The Book Room is a monthly podcast of conversations with distinguished authors who have written novels and works of fiction that inspire, empower and ignite our senses. Books that transport us into a place of awareness that we can no longer escape from. Books that stay with us. Books that help us to combat the toxic impact of apathy. Books that tell us beautiful stories. And the stories are so well written that they suck us into the worlds of the characters and turn us all into active participants in a much-needed revolution. Books that try to change this world for the better. I'm recording today from my home on Coolin Country in Melbourne, and the conversation you're going to hear took place on Zoom while I was visiting Aranta Country in Alice Springs. I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present, and to extend my respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening today. I would also like to pledge that while I am a guest on your land, I will learn your stories, your histories, and your struggles. I pledge to stand in solidarity, real, not rhetorical, to pay my rent and to offer my respect whenever and wherever possible. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal. For those who don't know me, I'm a writer, originally from Gaza in Palestine, and like all Palestinian writers, I use my words to fill in the blank spaces left by the erasure of my people's history and culture. Today, I am really delighted to share with you my conversation with the brilliant Palestinian-American novelist, poet, and activist, Suzanne Abulhawa. The interview was recorded back in October of last year as part of a series of webinars presented by APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. We'll be joined towards the end of our conversation by next month's guest on the podcast, so please be sure to stick around and meet them. Enjoy. And now, without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, my guest. It is my absolute honor um, to introduce her. It actually fills me with pride as a woman, as a Palestinian, and as a writer to welcome someone who has broken so many records and who has shattered so many ceilings uh, that I absolutely stand in awe of her, uh, a brave, fierce warrior spirit. Um, who has done so much for Palestine and for the cause of, of humanity. As well as being a novelist, Suzanne Abulhawa is a poet and an activist. Her debut novel, Mornings in Jenin, was an international bestseller that was translated into 32 languages, making her one of the most widely read Arab authors of all time. Other works by Abulhawa include a 2015 novel, The Blue Between Sky and Water. Oh, I absolutely love reading that one. Um, and a poetry collection, uh, as, as well as several anthologies and a multitude of articles and essays in both the print and the online media. Abulhawa is also a biologist. 
and a founder of Playgrounds for Palestine, a children's organization that's dedicated to upholding the right to play for Palestinian children living under Israeli occupation and in refugee camps and elsewhere. Suzanne's new novel, Against the Loveless World, has received so much accolades, including the New York Times, which called it a beautiful, urgent novel of the Palestinian struggle. Not that Suzanne would have cared if the New York Times reviewed her book or not, because Suzanne doesn't write for the approval of such institutions. Um, if you follow her, if you read her, if you know her, you know that she writes for her life. She writes for her soul and for her spirit. And in doing so, she nourishes ours. Suzanne, it's an absolute honor to say welcome to the show. Habibti, the honor is mine. Um, I, I feel like you and I have had this sort of mutual love fest for years on Facebook, even though we've never met. So this is a, this is a joy for me to finally get to do an event with you. And, um, and thank you for that um, very kind and generous intro. Suzanne, um, I mean, I don't know where to start with you. I've got a thousand things that I wanna to talk to you about, um, but maybe just start with the beginning. Can you just tell us a little bit about, um, about your story in just a few words? Where were you born? <laughs> where did you um, grow up? I know it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Briefly, you know, uh, I guess my story is is everybody, every Palestinian story. You know, we, um, my family was uh, exiled in the '67 war. They they became refugees, um, and uh, ended up in Kuwait, where I was born um, in 1970, dating myself. And um, I didn't remain in Kuwait, though. Um, I. Uh, um, I, I lived in Jerusalem for several years in an orphanage. And I eventually came to the United States when I was about 13 years old. Um, I came to the South um, in North Carolina. And uh, that's a whole, that's a whole nother story too. But, yeah. And I've been here ever since. I've been here since uh, 1983, I guess. Yeah. And you're fluent in both languages. Do you ever write in, in Arabic as well or? I am, I am fluent, but I don't, because I left when, at a young age, my Arabic kind of got arrested at that, um, at that level. And uh, I don't have enough confidence. I kind of fantasize about, you know, really studying it intensely for a while and, and just writing in Arabic. Um, but right now I don't feel like my Arabic is sophisticated enough to write a novel. Um, and I, yeah, so I wish, yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, that's, that's one of the things that um, exile sort of pilfers away is, you know, it, it steals language from our tongues. Um, yeah. yeah. But it also opens us up to, to so many yeah. experiences. Um, you know, I just want to ask you, you grew up, um, you grew up in, in the U.S. for the most part, right? Um, and yet you, your, your writing is all about Palestine. Um, as if you've never left. And um, why do you think that is? I mean, how, what, what makes you write? And, and why is the writing always taking you back home uh, when, when you've been elsewhere all your life? Yeah, well, not all my life. I mean, I think the most, the, the formative years of my life were overseas. And um, 
And, you know, you're right. Um, the way you phrased it, it's as if I never left. Um, I think I live here, um, but my heart, the, the things that matter aren't here. Um, and you like growing up, you know, I think in my younger years, that wasn't so apparent to me. Um, there were moments in this country's history that really highlighted it. Um, most notably was 9-11. Um, and I think throughout our history, no matter where we were, no matter where we settled, and certainly the same, you know, that can be said for the protagonist in my new book where, you know, she lived in Kuwait and that was her home. And, uh, but something happens and we're reminded that no, you don't belong here. You're a guest and now you need to leave. And yeah. so this sort of, I've always had this sense that um, the earth is just really unsteady beneath my feet. And, uh, and this I just, this deep longing to go home. And even when I'm there, it doesn't feel like home either because yeah. someone else is there and my family's not there. Um, so, so exile is this sort of perpetual feeling of instability. And I guess that sort of is reflected in the things I write. Of not, of not belonging. And, and Nahar, so much, um, I'm, I'm going to jump now into this, um, your character, your protagonist in, in your new novel, uh, Nahar, who um, had uh, almost multiple personalities, multiple names, multiple everything, because she didn't have um, that stability in her life. She didn't have that one thing that, that she knew for certain that she is. Uh, not until the end anyway, until she grew comfortable in her skin. But she was, she was the exile. Um, she was, you know, every time she felt she belonged and got comfortable into something, circumstances would take her um, elsewhere and remind her she's not from there. Um, look, we, we share this in common. Um, I, I, my family was also made refugees in 67. We ended up in Daman, which is an, a few hours drive from Kuwait. <laughs> Uh, and so when I was reading the book, it really resonated with me. I knew that world. I knew that world of wanting to fit in Khaliji music, the, the women only parties for, where you danced and, and then that terrible feeling um, that with, with any political event, it, you suddenly become the outsider um, and you're suddenly become threatened. When you were, when you were in, in Kuwait, you were refugees. Um, I just, people don't really grasp what it means to be a refugee. And I would like you to um, just explain what it means to have that lack of, you know, to not have the appropriate papers that give you rights. What does, what does that mean for, for a child growing up in, in Kuwait yeah. or anywhere really? Well, you know, you're kind of, you're not entirely aware of, uh, I mean, as a child, you're just, you're, you're just with your family. Um, and I, I, I hinted at it earlier that there's this kind of, when you are aware of it, there is a, 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 this sense of that the earth just is always shaking under your feet and it's unsteady and that you can't get a grip. You can't hold something long enough to, um, to, to, to belong to it. I think in my case, um, because my, my exile 
actually my exile happened alone. Like I wasn't with my family and I've been in this country alone. It's kind of a long story, but um, I was here when I was very young. Um, you know, I was born in Kuwait, but I came here when I was a, an infant and I stayed before until just for a few years, just long enough to learn English with a Southern accent. And when it was, but I didn't have papers, I was undocumented. And then when it was time to come back, I was still undocumented and I didn't know it, you know, this was in the seventies and, you know, you could get on a plane as a child as, you know, unaccompanied minor, which was like a great adventure for me. And one of the things when you were asking, when you first asked the question, the first thing that popped in my head is that you develop a cunning, a real sort of survivalist um, cunning. And when I got to the airport, in New York, um, and I realized, you know, that I, I was pulled. To, I was, you know, some immigration officers were. I didn't have a passport. I had nothing. I had no like, no ability or no reason to come into this country. But I had this strong Southern accent, and I immediately I knew. Like nobody had told me I needed to do this, but you know, it just sort of survival kicks in, and I put on my 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 best acting ability and these two kind-hearted uh immigration officers i was a child you know and just saying well but I, but school's gonna start soon and i'm gonna miss school if you don't let me get home to my daddy <laughs> you know i mean um, <laughs> you know exile uh, um you you have to yeah you it makes you it makes you uh <laughs> find the actor in you it mm. makes you find the survivor um yeah. in you you uh find all kinds of facets of yourself that um you might not have otherwise yeah and you kind of you bring that into your your writing and your your book and the personality of the women always these amazing strong women uh who are full of faults your women are not perfect i love them for that um, they're not on some pedestal. They're not the perfect mother or the perfect wife or the perfect daughter or the perfect sister. Um, but but they're, they're so human that we have, they become part of, of who we are as we, we read about them. And I want to get into that. But before I do, um, and I'm aware of, of the time, and I, um, I just want to ask you what it means for you as a writer. Um, to, to be in solidarity with other writers. I know that you yourself have been censored. Um, I know that you yourself have been under uh, attack uh, because of, of the things that you write about, because of your Palestinianism. Um, and so what, what, what does it mean for us to, to stand with each other? And I'm going to just bring up uh, an incident that really got my attention a while back. Uh, when Alice Walker was being under uh, attack um, and being called an anti-Semite. And of course, Alice Walker is an iconic figure um, in the world of writing and authorship. And you wrote at the time uh, in an article and you were one of the very few voices that actually stepped up to defend her. And you wrote, Alice Walker's legacy has been one of love, defiance, and living one's truth. She's a towering cultural figure, a civil rights leader, and an ardent feminist, and a brave champion of human rights. She is also imperfect, 
and not beyond criticism, but an anti-Semite she is not. And in, in, that, in that phrasing of she is also imperfect, um, which is your characters, which is all of us, you've captured so much. And I, I just want to stop here and say, talk to me about what it means to stand in solidarity with each other as writers, um, as imperfect as we all are. Well, on imperfections, I mean, I don't know anybody who's perfect. Um, and and if there is somebody, I don't really want to know them because they're probably super boring and uninteresting. Um, you know, it's it's our it's our flaws and um, and our imperfections that make us human. And um, as far as Alice Walker is concerned, I was really. Um, dismayed by the criticism not not because not the criticism coming from Zionists because they just slap that anti-semitism label on anybody mm. that they don't like um, they have weaponized it in a way that I think ultimately is going to backfire on them but they they have weaponized it to silence any criticism of Israel um, what really upset me is that some of the criticism was coming from our camp, from some of our allies, and even from some Palestinians. And um, I, I felt like um, I felt like we some we she needed uh, there there had to she doesn't need me no the, we needed. Uh, a voice or somebody to to stand stand by her in the same way she has been standing with Palestinians for a very long time, um, not just rhetorically but materially. She put her life on the line to to join the Gaza flotilla. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily. Um, I don't, you know, this was all about the, this book that she was reading by David, yeah. Yeah. or Ike, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I don't know this guy, I don't, I've never read him, but it doesn't matter. I've read Alice Walker and, and she is not cancelable as far as I'm concerned. And, um, and it, it, it's dismaying to me when Palestinians even will, will sort of jump on these bandwagons to, yeah them a friend someone who has and it's not like she did something so horrible it wasn't she has a point of view you can agree with it or not she was not being anti-semitic and i didn't appreciate it you know i i um i think i think the question though is is more about how do you how do you stick your neck out and you've done it on several occasions where you've actually um you know, is it, is it because you can afford to because you're Suzanne Abulhawa? So you've built a name and a brand and, um, and, and you've got people who believe in you. But, but I think it's more than that because if, if Alice Walker can be targeted, then who can't be? Right. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> like, um, and I wanted to also bring up another, another thing before we talk about your novel. Um, Another aspect of, of, of that bravery that comes with writing. Um, and, and that 
was when when you were invited to speak once um, on Al Jazeera at a panel for Al Nakba, and you um, there were Israelis on the panel, and you wrote this really beautiful um, article uh, to the reason why you you were not going to join that panel. You actually made some conditions if you were to join it. But the gist of it was that, that you were guarding, you, you felt that we needed to, to speak up for ourselves. If we're speaking about Al-Nakba, which is a, a traumatic experience that we Palestinians have experienced, why do we need, is, why do we need to talk about it through an Israeli lens? Um, what is the, why do we need to have two sides to Al-Nakba? There's only you know, it's, it's something that we need to talk about. So you were guarding the Palestinian narrative. And you do that in your writing as well. As, as a Palestinian writer, you're constantly um, presenting the Palestinian narrative, presenting the Palestinian story. You write about Al-Nakba, you, you've written about it in your novels. Um, and, and I think that's really brave. Uh, but do you think everybody is able to do that? Can everybody have that kind of luxury of saying no to Al Jazeera or to CNN or whatever network that invites them. Um, it's interesting that you use the word luxury. I don't think it's a luxury at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of principle. Um, and I, I don't know that, I don't know what being able to afford, you know, uh, putting your neck out. I don't know what that means. Um, uh, if, if it's like an economic thing, I, you know, I'm still as broke as I was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, I, I mean, I was, you know, uh, the difference now is that I don't have to have a full-time, uh, nine to five job and write. I, I am able to get by on, on writing, but it's still the same meager, you know, existence. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not nominated for major literary awards for, for reasons. So, but that's, you know, I think, I think having, um, established a platform actually increases one's responsibility, um, to, to not be silent in moments like this. Um, so it's exactly the opposite, uh you know, it's not so much that you can afford to do something, it's that, you know, you can't afford not to. Um, and, and I don't feel like I was sticking my neck out. Um, because, you know, there were plenty of people who came to, to chop my neck off after that article. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's really important to to do something that that we that that you can live with yourself, that I can live with myself. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, um, I had this really wonderful bit of advice um, when I was writing my second novel, and it has never left me. And and um, do you know who Ornette Coleman is? No. So he's he's a he's a really famous um, jazz musician. Um, in the United States. He's passed away now, but he, uh, I, I had, I had the, um, the extreme honor of being in his loft one time with some friends. He was quite, you know, old and sick at that point. Um, and I was speaking with his son, Donardo, who, uh, you know, I was telling him about my new novel and my insecurities and self-doubt and all that. 
And he said to me, you know, you just got to do um, what you can live with and you got to make art for art's sake. You can't ever think about anything or anybody else. And, um, and he said, if, if my dad had listened to anybody, he wouldn't be here. He wouldn't be who he is. And it's true. When Ornette Coleman first came on the jazz scene, he was booed off stage. All the, the, great, the great jazz musicians of the time, like Miles Davis and um, Coltrane and, and all those guys, they wouldn't even play with him. Um, and it took a while for someone to realize what a genius he was, you know, but it was, it was, it, but he kept, he persisted because he was, he did what, yeah. what made sense in his soul. And I think that, you know, um, that's been a really good bit of advice that I have taken and not just when it comes to art or literature, but, um, just in life in general. Um, I would like you to, um, to tell us a little bit about the plot without giving too much away off against the loveless world. Um, we spoke a little bit earlier about Nahar, but I think it would be good for, for people watching to know what the story is about and to, if possible, maybe set the stage for us for the part that you're chosen to read for us today. Um, actually, so, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, she has, she's a woman of several names. Um, and I, the part I'm gonna read is uh, sort of touches on, on, her, on her many names. Um, so Nahed was uh, um, born uh, in Kuwait and she, um, her life, she starts out as a very kind of shallow, um, you know, just young woman who dreams of meeting the perfect man, having lots of babies and, and having these amazing modern appliances that are gonna make her friends jealous. She's a brilliant dancer. Um, but she gets swept away by life. She finds herself a, uh, a jilted young wife. Um, her husband abandons her and she's suddenly, you know, on the margins of life. Uh, she becomes a sex worker. Uh, and then events of uh, the early nineties happen when Saddam invades Kuwait. And then there, you know, when, and then the United States invades uh, um, Iraq and there's this mass exodus of Palestinians from Kuwait. And so her story sort of follows that history. Um, and I, so she tells her, her story from an Israeli prison cell. That's how it starts. There, every, every section starts with a chapter called The Cube. Um, and she lives in this sort of, uh, um, this highly automated solitary prison cell called The Cube. Does the cube really exist in, in its form or is this all fictional? No, it had to be all fictional because um, it, it's a really, it's a really um, heavy burden and, uh, and, a, and a big ethical responsibility to represent um, political prisoners. And I, I needed to create something fictional because mm -hmm. I just didn't feel like I had a right to, to try and depict uh, a real place that exists um not having been a political prisoner myself and um anyway uh so that was that uh, entirely out of my imagination but after actually afterward i found out that there are some after speaking with some some uh political prisoners who had been in prison for decades they i was informed that there are something there's something similar to this. wow uh, 
so um, she, so I wanted to take this woman who exists on the margins of a marginalized society, you know, sex work in our society is, is, um, uh, is on, you know, those folks are untouchable among Arabs. And I wanted to take a person like that and, and put them in, in the most exalted position in our society. And that is position of a freedom fighter. Um, and, and to just explore those contradictions and what that means, what it means to move the center out to the margins. What do, how people, what do people do with that? And, you know, ultimately it's, it's a love story uh, on multiple levels. Um, so. Well, before you just start reading the section, I just want to remind everyone that if they have questions for you to please um, post their questions in the Q&A section of uh, this webinar. Back to you, Suzanne. Do you want me to read now? Yes, please. Okay, so let me just set this up real quick. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is in the early, in the very early parts of the book. Um, it kind of gives a little bit about her life and how she got her names. Mama was pregnant with me when Israel made her a refugee for the second time. After fleeing Haifa in 1948, she had made a home with my father in Sitti Wasfiya's ancestral village, Anas Sultan. Fleeing once more in June of 1967 with only whatever they could carry, they walked more than eight kilometers to cross the River Jordan at the Allenby Bridge. When they got there, the bridge was overwhelmed with bodies and eventually collapsed just as Mama was about to cross. Some people fell and had to be rescued. Some didn't make it out, but people kept walking on the collapsed bridge, holding on to its cables and broken pieces as they waded through the water. Mama told me, I just prayed to God as your father and I crossed and I made a deal with the river. I said, I'd name you after it if it didn't swallow any of us. But calling me Jordan would have been too strange. That's how I got the name River Nahar. My father made the dangerous journey back to Palestine after he got us to safety in Jordan. Palestinians learned the first time in 1948 that leaving to save your life meant that you would lose everything and could never go back. That's why Baba stayed alone in our empty house for months under curfew while Israel consolidated power over the whole of Palestine. To be alone in the eerie quiet of that emptied home where he and his siblings had grown up amid the daily bustle of a large family must have been painful. Still, he stayed in Garahawiya and could thenceforth remain in Palestine as a foreign resident in his own home. He said it was better than being a refugee. Baba joined us as soon as he could, but his long absence had fractured our family. By the time I was born, my parents had already made their way to Kuwait, where my father was fucking the first of many girlfriends. Her name was Yaqut, and that's the name he recorded on my birth certificate, not Nahar, without consulting with my mother. He was probably with Yaqut the night Mama went into labor, probably a little drunk when he reached the hospital and still basking in the glow of a romantic evening when he impulsively named me after his new lover, perhaps underestimating Mama's intuition and her rage. Yaqut is an unusual name for Palestinians. 
one finds it more among Iraqis, which is why I figured my father's lover was a daughter of Babylon. It means ruby, and everyone agrees it's a rich and resonant Arabic name. But when mama saw the birth certificate, she screamed and cried and hit my father. She smashed all the plates in our house, hurling a few at him as he ducked left and right. He let her vent, apologized, swore mama was the only woman he loved and promised he wouldn't do it again. They probably made love afterward, had a good run together for a while. Then the whole scenario was repeated with another woman. When she was pregnant the second time, Mama threatened to kill my father if he named the baby after one of his whores. But she didn't have to worry when she birthed a boy. My father named him Wasfi after his mother, Siti Wasfiye, which was just as bad as far as Mama was concerned. Needless to say, Mama never used the names recorded on our birth certificates. She kept her promise to the river and called me Nahir. My, bro my brother Wasfi was Jihad, a name Mama chose, which became yet another point of contention between her and Siti Wasfiye. Only my family and some administrators at my school knew my real name was Yahut, which had an element of fate to it, because when the Americans ousted Saddam, Kuwaiti police asked about someone named Nahir, but my identification card said Yahut. My brother wasn't as lucky. People called him by either name or both, Wasfi Jihad. When the Kuwaiti police went on the hunt for Palestinians to exact revenge because Yasser Arafat had sided with Saddam, they knew who they were looking for. Jihad was only three years old when Baba died of a heart attack in the arms of another woman. Mama lied and said Baba was home when it happened. She made up an elaborate tale that shifted each time she told it. He was wearing the red flannel pajamas I bought for him, she would say one moment. The next, he'd be in the green pajamas or just his underwear. In that version, she had to dress him quickly before the ambulance came. Mama was a terrible liar, but the truth was too humiliating, even though everyone knew and Mama knew they knew. The lie wasn't just to protect her and us from shame. I think she wanted to protect Baba too, because despite everything, Mama loved my father very much and he loved her in his own way. Once, in the heat of a fight over money, it was usually about money, Siti Wasfiye blamed Mama for the death of my father, her only son. If you'd been a better wife, he wouldn't have had to go to other women, Siti Wasfiye said casually as she ate the food Mama had prepared. If you, knew, if you raised a man who knew how to keep his dick in his pants and spent his money on his family instead of on whores, we wouldn't be having this argument, Mama fired back. That night, I heard Mama on the balcony apologizing to my dead father for what she had said. I forgive you, my love. I miss you. She spoke softly to the ether. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, that was, yeah. Just listening, and I did listen as well to you on Audible. So if people want to hear Suzanne read the book, you can always get it uh, in audio format. Plug it into your ears and you'll have Suzanne's voice follow you around your house, which is a very beautiful experience. That was 
gorgeous. Um, and um, I love Siti Wasfia. I mean, she's, <laughs> and I know her. I know that woman. I have, <laughs> I have seen her in so many settings, you know, where nothing is good enough for her. Yeah. Um, that was really, really beautiful. I just want to remind everyone that um, if they have a question for Suzanne to please um, post it in the Q&A. Suzanne, who do you read for? Who's, who's your favorite author? Who's a writer that inspires you and that you enjoy reading for? Um, I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's it, like particular books. I'm always on the hunt for books um, more so than particular authors. Um, you know, some authors that sort of jump out at me are uh, my favorite book of all time is 100 Years of Solitude. Um, mm. uh, the God of Small Things, um, The Color Purple. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just. Uh, um, and, and you could you could see these influences in your writing. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, so we have a question or a few questions actually which I wasn't aware of the time but we need to start asking you some of these questions so there's a question here um, it doesn't say who it's oh it's from Sahar what's next after against the loveless world are you already thinking um, of let me just open this yeah of outlining your next story um, so right now I'm working on uh, Palestine Rights. It's a literature festival. And if you haven't registered, please register. Um, it's going to take place in uh, December. And we're um, working uh, with a whole group of organizers. It's going to be the, it was supposed to be, it's supposed to happen in March, um, but we had to uh, cancel it because of the pandemic. So we're going to have it virtually online and it's going to be wonderful. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, I do have a book brewing in my head, um, but I never write outlines. I don't really know how to, I do that in my scientific writing, of course, but when it comes to literature, I, I just kind of start with a little seed and I just sit at my computer and see what comes out. Um, and, you know, without exception, the early drafts are complete crap. Like, just really, really, um, yeah. but I, but that's my process. Like I, I just write you know, hundreds of pages of crap. And then I start working from that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you don't give up. <laughs> and I think all writers have a collection of uh, crap in their, yeah. <laughs> in their writing folders. Um, there's a, a question here, I'm just checking, uh, from Faisal. Was the adaption of a third person or the adoption of a third person voice in Against the Loveless World, limiting in comparison with the multiplicity of voices in Mornings in Janine and the blue between sky and water? That's a good question. So um, the Against the Loveless World is not a third person narration. It's actually narrated in first person, um, which I discovered is a lot harder than third, third, uh, third person narration. Um, I didn't know this, but I guess, you know, uh, and then I found out this is a known thing among writers, uh, but I mostly, I guess, writers who have MFAs who study the humanities, um, not science like me. Um, the, uh, uh, 
the blue between sky and water also has uh, multiple voices. Um, there's the voice of Khaled, um, and then but the and then of course it's it's uh, third person. So it's really whatever whatever works. I mean, I would like to say that I had some you know grand plan or that I you know this is I had this really amazing reason behind it. But the truth is, is that I don't, and I, I don't, I, I'm not a planner. Um, I don't even know how to do that. I'm an extremely disorganized person, but I can sit down and, and write kind of, write whatever comes out. And I would liken it to, if you can imagine a sculpt, a sculptor who is creating, um, you know, a life-size something or other, they're starting out with a big ugly lump of clay and that's what those early pages are for and it's through that with those with you know these little gems that end up coming out in the midst of you know a lot of nothing um i start working with those and i whittle it down and that's what um and then what ends up working is what i go with and so um with each one it's you know the different voices sort of sorted themselves Thank you. I have a question from Samiha. Um, and she says, I found that liter literature written about Palestine in English is obsessed with positive representation of Palestine and the Palestinians. We are either victims or angels or freedom fighters. This Filtering is not so present in Palestinian literature written by women writers writing in Arabic, such as Sahar Khalifa. How did you manage to bravely break that cycle? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't agree that, um, uh, you know, in Anglophile literature, um, that there's always these positive representations. However, I would say that, you know, we do maybe skirt certain topics and some things are, um, are sacrosanct that we don't, you know, we don't go near, but I think we should. And I, I really actually, I really appreciate this question because this is something I've spoken about a lot, this kind of dichotomy um, that in, in popular imagination in the West in particular, but also in the Middle East, not just, you know, not just in the West, but especially in the West, that we are either these, you know, crazy, irrational, you know, violent people, or we are these pathetic, pitiable refugees, uh, charity cases, etc. Um, and you know, in this 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 latter uh, um, sort of Im you know imagination or or description of us. Or narrative of us goes hand in hand with this smooth discourse that I really don't like. Like, you know, everybody talks about how how steadfast Palestinians are, and and the idea is that we we can take anything you you throw at us, yeah, right. And it's and and then our room our this unimaginable suffering becomes romanticized, mm -hmm. and it it really makes me angry because, you know especially when non non Palestinians do it, you know, you're romanticizing someone's extreme trauma, you know, especially when it comes to Gaza, people are traumatized, they yeah. are suffering from some really some profound mental health issues from from 
from this barbaric siege and this constant death on them. So I think, and, and, and also what goes along with this discourse is this idea that we deserve liberation because we're good, right? Because, because we are steadfast and whatnot. Yeah. But the truth is, no, we have some real assholes in our, in our society. We have some real corrupt people and we have angels and we have wonderful people. We have the full spectrum of humanity and who we are has nothing to do with what we deserve. Uh, you know, it, it, um, it, it has nothing to do with yeah. Yeah. the fact that we deserve to be accorded, you know, basic uh, human dignity uh, um, that's accorded to everyone else. So, and, and this is the, I think this is the job of the artist. This is the job of culture and, um, and the job of writers and, uh, and people who do tatris and people who, who write music and who write plays um, and poetry is, is to bring forth our society in, in its complete nuance and humanity and corruption and beauty and, and diversity. So um, I, yeah, this is, this is a topic that's very dear to my heart and I appreciate you bringing it up in, in, a, uh, in that question. That was so beautifully said. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, for speaking for, from all of us, I think all Palestinian writers, you've, you've nailed it. Um, I'm going to ask you to stick around, um, Susan. We are going to come back to you. And I'm going to apologize uh, for people who have questions and are waiting. Uh, we are kind of running out of time here. And uh, I wanted to just introduce our author for, for the series for next month. And, and then I'm going to come back to you, Susan, um, and you get to have the last word uh, with uh, one of your beautiful poems. Um, so as promised, I would like to reveal our next guest in the book room is Mohammed Masoud Morsi, whose, whose uh, new novel, The Palace of Angels, was shortlisted for the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, um, the Christina Steed Prize for Fiction, and it was long listed for the Voss Literary Prize for 2020, which is a big deal. And, um, and why is this even a bigger deal than a big deal? Um, and the answer is, uh, apart from the fact that his novel is breathtaking and is written like a poem oozing uh, from the soul, it is uh, actually a big deal because the stories that he tells in this book are about Palestine and more especially um, detailing the horrors of life in Gaza during the bombardment of Gaza. And so it's a very brave uh, kind of writing and to see it opened up in spaces um, that didn't before celebrate Palestinian or uh, the Palestinian stories is a big deal. Uh, Marcy is going to just pop in now to say hello to everyone and to invite you all to come and see the next episode before we come back uh, to speak uh, with Suzanne. Uh, Marcy? Welcome on board. Uh, thank you, Samah, and uh, what an honor to be on this call. And uh, thank you for the beautiful introduction. And uh, um, very enjoying uh, listening to uh, Susan and this talk. Um, so um, yeah, I'm, um, 
Help me no, out. I'll hold up your book. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah, we would like to, you know, just show you the book there uh, and maybe just say a few words about the stories in this book. So um, the story, so, so the Palace of Angels is um, there is a trilogy of novels. So there are three books that are put together, but they're loosely interconnected. But really, um, what the Palace of Angels is is um, is uh, is all the uncomfortable things that Susan also was talking about just before. Um, and but in they came the Palace of Angels came from the the work uh, when my was working in Gaza in fourteen and uh, and also um, from the experience I had in Palestine and uh, Lebanon and Syria in fifteen. Um, and um, and the feeling of of that you know um, the feeling of of being Palestinian when in Palestine really because yeah. <laughs> uh, you know often you're asked if you're Arab or you're, if you're this or if you're that uh, and I think as a as a humanity when you feel uh, people are your brothers and sisters and your mother and your father you uh, you uh, it's and, personal. Yeah, it becomes personal. You try and convey this in in standard newspapers, and yeah. uh, and and you understand how a whole people, a whole culture that's very unique, even in the Arab world, you know, is is being, you know, deliberately trying to be erased. You know, um, so I decided this these personal uh, stories needed to to reach people and reach their heart. Thank you, Morsi, for popping in. And thank you, Suzanne, uh, for all that you do and, uh, and all that you present us with. And, uh, and thank you for being here with us. So I'm going to let you have the last word and we will be ending with a poem from Suzanne Abulhawa. Thank you, everyone. Okay, so this poem is called uh, Sister Palestinian. It's from uh, my poetry collection, um, My Voice Sought the Wind. Uh, and there's a there's another f bomb in here too. <laughs> I apologize. This is fair warning. Sister Palestinian, <clears throat> your fate was written the day you played hopscotch, when the <clears throat> when they pulled the lands from under your feet. So you carried your country on your back, and the bags handed to you on the long march to oblivion. When your father, king of his castle, was forced to sleep on dirt. You served him coffee and scrubbed his feet to save his pride. When your mother went mad and died with anguish, your tears watered a refugee's garden. Someone put two gold bracelets on your wrist, the braided bangles we all wear, and you stared at them on your wedding night as you gripped the bedpost with white knuckles. The first time your husband hit you, it nearly knocked the country off your back, but your first baby was a promise too precious, so you sewed Palestine to your skin. When he came back from Israel's prison, you tenderly dressed his wounds, kissed them, and you prayed for him. You loved him, and he left five months after your second daughter was born. European women, he said, knew how to please a man. He said, you had never really been an exciting fuck. He didn't mind that European women could not pronounce his, way, his name. He never knew about his third daughter 
whom you named Feiruz, for the voice that was your only solace. When another of history's storms raised your house, the winds carried you to foreign lands, and you were at home in the devastating freedom of answering to no one. When then you became an exciting fuck, you found yourself searching over and over for some meaning in the heartbreak of an empty orgasm. The girls you raised were not Palestinian. The house you built was not yours. The country tethered to your skin sags as if a body of sorrow. You deserve better, sister. Come back in another life to a country that holds you, a man who honors the language of your heart and daughters who will sing for you a Palestinian lullaby before you finally sleep. Thank you for being with us today in the book room. Next month, I will be speaking with Mohammed Morsi about his new book, Palace of Angels. I hope you can join us. The book room is presented in partnership with APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, a united national voice advocating for justice and peace for Palestinians. Thank you to Jessica Morrison and Sarah Saleh from APAN for all their work in producing the webinar where this conversation was recorded. The Book Room is produced by Lara Week and myself, Samah Sabawi. Technical production is by Justin Coe, and our artwork and social media is by Lara Shamas. Nahid Ilreis composed the music in the show. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at The Book Room with Samah Sabawi. Our website is www.inthebookroom.com. There you can find show notes from today's episodes and links to purchase all the books that we've been talking about today. Thank you.